Tremendous truth. Thank you, Harmony, for leading us this morning in music ministry. Um, and also very appropriate for where we are heading in the scriptures today and over the course of the next number of weeks that we're going to be together. If you are a child in kindergarten through third grade, you are dismissed at this time and welcome to head down to class. Otherwise, you have to stay here. We're glad you're here, uh, whether you're with us in the building today or online. We have a new memory verse for this month. It is the month of January, and it's from the book of Job, which we begin a series in today. Job 19.25, let's say it together. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job 19.25. And we do begin a new series today where we're going to be surveying the five books of wisdom literature that are found in the Old Testament. There we go. Uh, And we're going to approach this series as a congregation with some collective goals that we're going to share in uh, together. First, we want to rehearse and reflect on some of the less read and studied portions of our scriptures. And we hope that we will whet our appetites for further uh, personal or corporate inquiry through this study. So you may hear something or we may read something or look at something together that maybe you haven't read or studied in a number of years because not all of us have the habit in our yearly reading to read the book of Song of Solomon or to read the book of Ecclesiastes. But we're going to review some of those materials uh, in the next 15 weeks together. And then finally, we hope to remind ourselves that all 66 books of the scriptures have been given by God and are to be used by his people for our corporate and individual formation in Christ. God gave us the entirety of the scriptures from his perfect, complete, and eternal perspective. And in light of this truth, all scriptures are relevant for the spiritual development and formation of the church. They were written for us, but they were not written to us. And for this series, we're going to share three sermons from each of the five books of wisdom literature. This leaves us with 15 Sundays in which we'll cover a massive portion of the Old Testament scriptures. And so while we hold that in mind, It may also be important for us to clarify the expectations for this series that we're going to share in. First, we are going to survey each book. It's not an exhaustive study. It's not expositional. It's more of a summary of content. The goal, again, is to whet our appetites for further study and further reading. We want to leave on Sunday curious and hungry for more. Second, we will not say all that there is to say or address in any one of uh, our sermons uh, time together. In fact, some weeks we're going to take very large portions of the text and have to share uh, summary thoughts about those large portions and look at themes that are developed within those portions. We'll move from Job, then to Psalms, then to Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, then Song of Songs. And each week, we hope that we will look through the lens of the text towards Jesus. 
So how might the Holy Spirit use a study through the ancient wisdom literature of the Bible to form and develop his body of Christ in 2024? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, then we would want a study through these books to, within our congregation, develop a dependence on God. Well, how might we know? How might we see that a study through the wisdom literature of the Scriptures is actually growing our dependence on the Lord as a congregation? And I might suggest three ways within our community that we might recognize a growing dependence on the Lord this upcoming year. First, perhaps a growing participation in corporate and individual prayer. There are many opportunities uh, for prayer within our congregation. Some Wednesday evening, men Saturday morning. There's monthly prayer calendars. There's prayer guides and prayer supplements available to you for you to use throughout the month uh, related to global ministries, related to birthdays within the congregation, and all kinds of other areas. And so one way we might recognize that wisdom literature has been effective, the Holy Spirit's used it effectively within our community as we've studied it, is through a growing participation in our prayer ministries. A second way may be through growing habits of gathering in groups to read and explore the scriptures. What a wonderful thing to see developed in our community. If the Holy Spirit would use a study through the wisdom literature to provoke curiosity amongst the congregation so that people say, hey, let's get together and let's read and explore a little bit further some of the things that we looked at in Job this week. That would be a tremendous way that the Spirit might use a study through the wisdom literature. And then finally, perhaps growing patterns of care and service towards our neighbors and one another. And certainly as we study the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, these are all ways in which the Lord might grow our dependence on Him through this study. So today we begin in the book of Job. So if you have your Bibles, you can take them or turn them on on your device and open to the book of Job. We're going to begin today in Job chapter 1, and the question that we are going to explore together, or one of the questions we'll explore together today, in a broken and fallen world, what effect must Satan and his allies' sin and death have? even on those who desire to live faithfully. As we prepare to read from the book of Job, let's pray and ask God to guide our study today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as a community and look at your word together. There is no doubt that for each and every one of us who are here, who are listening, we've experienced hard things in our lives. Sometimes, Father, it's hard for us to make sense of those things. Sometimes we try to white-knuckle our way through life instead of really sitting and looking at the hard things that are around us and looking for you 
within them. As we open the book of Job today, we will see hard things in the life of Job. A good man, an upright man. We will see how sin and death affected his life. We will see how you were present with him. There will be many things that we will not understand. Many things related to trial and trauma and testing in our lives that are beyond our knowledge and comprehension on this side of heaven. Lord, we seek your wisdom. And we lean into the hope of your presence as the God who is with us, who does not forsake and abandon us in hard things but sits with us and comforts us and can lift us up. We thank you for that today, for that reality. We pray that you guide and direct our time together through this book. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Job chapter 1 will begin today in verses 1 to 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Our text presents us with a man from northern Arabia whose name is Job. He's cast as mature, faithful, steadfast. He's not sinless, but he is righteous. He's a man whose life might be characterized by his pursuit of a right relationship with God, a pursuit that's motivated by faith. He feared God. He regularly repented of evil. The produce or the fruit of his life served to us as a witness to how God had rewarded Job's faithfulness. The text describes for us a man who cared so much about honoring God that he would even make burnt offerings in the early morning for each of his children just in the case that one might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was the pattern of Job's life, the aim of his heart to honor God, to serve his family and humbly provide 
for his estate in the midst of a tumultuous and crooked world. And though Job endeavors to live faithfully, he finds himself living in a world that's been ransacked by Satan and his greatest allies, sin and death. In some ways, we might all identify with Job. People who are called by God, seeking to live faithfully and upright, yet still surrounded by darkness and frequently disrupted by our own sin or the sins of others, whether those sins are perpetrated against us or against others. For the most part, in these early verses of Job, it appears that he has lived largely unscathed and unaffected by life's hard realities. And as the curtains of the heavenly council are pulled back, we're invited to imagine how Satan works against humanity as our darkest adversary and most relentless accuser. We get to step into the inner chambers of the council of Yahweh and take a seat with the rest of the audience And it is here in verses 6 to 12 and other places throughout this text that we're given both terrific and terrifying insights. Look at verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. As we look at the beginning of these verses, Satan and his company have been on the prowl, seeking who they may devour. And here they've returned to present themselves to God. The words roving about on the earth, walking back and forth across it, indicate the totality of Satan's dominion in this space. The fingerprints of Satan and the stains of sin and death cover every corner of the earth. And yet, we still find people like Job. Job is a person whom, as the text presents, God sees, God knows, God even celebrates. With Satan present, God praises Job's faithfulness. He's not succumbed to Satan's ways, patterns that lead to death. 
And while God dotes over his child, Job, Satan goes about doing what he does, doesn't he? Satan is known in the scriptures as what? The great accuser of the brethren. And so he begins to do what he does best. Satan dismisses God's praise of Job. Job only lives in this way because you, God, have sustained him. You've put a hedge of protection around him and everything that belongs to him. For Satan, then, the accusation of Job is that his faithfulness is only circumstantial. Job blesses God because he himself is blessed and has everything he needs to live comfortably and prosperously in this world. So Satan asked God, reach out your hand and touch Job in a way that adversely affects his comfort and security. Then in Satan's mind, Job's faithfulness would crumble under the weight of adversity, even to the point of cursing God to his face. And so we are confronted with one of the primary purposes of Job's book. One of the primary purposes of this piece of literature is to introduce its reader to wisdom that is helpful to the righteous who face suffering. God himself is not going to reach out his hand against Job, but he will allow Satan and his allies to have an adversarial effect on Job's life. And though Satan might have knowledge regarding Job's wealth and possessions, Satan is not able to see, to know, or to even fathom the sincerity of Job's faith or the orientation of Job's heart. For there is only one who is truly able to see, to know, to diagnose, repair, and restore the heart of humanity. Friends, that alone is God's work. And we may wrestle throughout our lives with verses one, with chapter 1, verse 12, and chapter 2, verse 6. And perhaps it is good and right for us to wrestle with scriptures that make us curious and uncomfortable. And we will often find that there are not easy answers. There are not simple solutions or theological insights that have not already been suggested related to why God allows the righteous to suffer. But we can say this. We can know that what God allows, He does not always approve of. And what God approves of, He does not always approve. Allow. And I am certain today that there are pastors, theologians, teachers, and Bible scholars far more knowledgeable than me who have said these words or offered similar sentiments in a better way than I have here. But for today, I have chosen to reflect on a reality that goes far beyond human understanding in this manner. We might also keep in mind that God's desire, God's plan, and God's will are three very different theological concepts. 
each one with multiple dimensions and many perspectives from which we might approach them. From our earthly, incomplete, and dimly lit perspectives, sometimes these concepts appear to synthesize or harmonize, working in correlations with one another. Other times they confuse and conflict us as they appear incongruent and maybe even at times antithetical. We do not see or know things from God's perspective. We understand God from an incomplete perspective. I'm going to need help with this today, I think. I don't know. There we go. We understand God from an incomplete perspective, and we live in a world that's not exactly how God has intended for it to be. Rather, we are confronted with the way that things are as a result of Adam and Eve's choice in the garden. A choice that each and every one of us would share in because if we were in their shoes, we would have done the same. Anyone in here willing to raise their hand and say, I wouldn't have taken of the fruit? I don't think so. Not me. In the end, we can state with confidence that we live in this physical world where Satan has some level of dominion and rule, where sin and death have affected, and where God still rules and reigns with absolute sovereignty, faithfulness, justice, righteousness, goodness, and love, all of which have been demonstrated and revealed in Christ Jesus. So verses 13 to 19 are very difficult. They invite us to see the destruction that Satan is going to bring upon Job and his estate. In these verses, Job's enemies take control of his possessions. They kill his servants. Fire falls from heaven and consumes Job's sheep and his servants. Even more enemies come. They steal his camels. Come on. What do they need the camels for? They steal his camels. They kill his servants. Finally, a great wind comes and collapses the house where his daughters and sons had been dining, killing all of them. This is unspeakable devastation. Verse 20. Then Job got up and tore his robe. He shaved his head. He threw himself down with his face to the ground. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return there. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be blessed. In all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he charge God with moral impropriety. Friends, it's hard to imagine the totality of despair that's gripped Job in these moments. The text tells us that he tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls prostrate, burying his face in the ground. His remarks are about the frailty and fragility of all of life we come into and we go out of this world naked and in between God gives and God takes away. This is how Job perceives things. 
There are many of us here today or watching online who, like Job, have blessed the Lord through the trauma and tears of terrible tragedy and unspeakable loss. Can we just pause and sit in that for a second, that reality? Many of the people that we love, that we've shared in Christian community with for many, many years, that we've known, that we've walked through life with, that we've raised our children with, many of them have blessed the Lord through terrible times of tragedy. In his grief, Job never accuses God of any moral impropriety against him. We as readers are then left to see Job as remaining faithful even as Satan raids him of his progeny, his property, and his prosperity. So what now, Satan? Would Satan now realize that his dominion has limits? That his power operates within boundaries? Satan could strike at the outermost parts of Job, even in such a way that would affect Job's innermost being. However, Satan could never look into, see, know, or directly touch the condition or the integrity of Job's heart. Job's heart was out of bounds to Satan. Seeing Job's faithful and true response in the face of his own tragedy and despair, would Satan now relent? What do we know? He's relentless, isn't he? Friends, our accuser is relentless. These are hard things. Job is not a book for the lighthearted. Yes, there's some really fun things in there, like Leviathan and Behemoth. Some really exciting things. But the totality of the book and what we're dealing with here is hard. And it's hard because Satan is real. He's not made up. And his work has real effect in this world. It's not a fairy tale, friends. It's real. Chapter 2. The day came when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also arrived among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roving about the earth and from walking back and forth across it. Then the Lord said to Satan, 
Have you considered my servant Job, for there is no one like him on earth, a pure and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil, and he still holds firmly to his integrity, so that you stirred me up to destroy him without reason? But Satan answered the Lord, Skin for skin. Indeed, a man will give up all that he has to save his life. But extend your hand and strike his bone and flesh, and he will no doubt curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, all right, he's in your power. Only preserve his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with a malignant ulcer from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Once again, we're presented with an example where Job is lifted up. God is giving him praise for his testimony in the face of suffering. He's remained upright and pure. Satan's attempted to turn him against God to see and to revel in a version of Job that would fall when he's faced with tragedy and suffering. Turning from God, even cursing God. Job has not given Satan the satisfaction. God reminds him in verse 3, He, Job, still holds firmly to his integrity that you stirred me up to destroy him without reason. Friends, clearly, it is the desire of Satan to see the righteous face the brutality of suffering and within it to fall away. From God. Our accuser will not stop. This time he intends to rob Job of his own health, his own well-being. And in the mind of Satan, Job has been able to cling to the comfort of good health. And this must be the reason that Job has not cursed God. And so Satan now finds himself in a bit of a conundrum, maybe even an irony. Isn't it interesting? Satan, the one who desires to afflict and torment, must also preserve and protect Job's life. Satan afflicts Job with ulcers from the top of his head through the soles of his feet. Job's life is preserved, but also Provoked. Verse 8 presents us with a difficult picture. Look at verse 8 in chapter 2. Job took a shard of broken pottery to scrape himself with while he was sitting among the ashes. The scholars ascertain that the ashes may refer to a place outside of a city where trash and human waste were deposited and burned. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, actually implies this in its translation when it states that Job was sitting on a dunghill outside of the city. Now friends, for a moment... Can we just think about the emotional, the social, the physical condition of 
Job sitting in these kinds of spaces, grieving, hurting, even despairing. This is a terribly dark and unsettling season in his life. And imagine his wife. We don't know much about Job's wife, but what we know is that she also along with Job, experienced this same terribly unspeakable tragedy. She's grieving, suffering the loss of her children. She finds Job sitting in the ashes, and her words are drawn from this deep well of pain and suffering that she is experiencing. Look at verse 9. Job's wife said to him, Are you still holding firmly to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he replied, You're talking like one of the godless women would do. Should we receive what is good from God and not also receive what is evil? In all this, Job did not sin by what he said. Job is quick, even within his own suffering, to recognize the place where his wife's words are coming from. He does not say that she is a foolish or godless woman, only that in this moment she is speaking as one would. He then offers a redemptive redirection. We all need a redemptive redirection from time to time. I know I do. From the ashes of his suffering, just a glimpse. It gives us insights into the theological foundations from which Job could stand up under the loss and the grief that he was suffering. We might read these words as spoken through tears to the one person, his wife, who remained in his life, who he cared most about. Could you imagine this conversation between husband and wife? Shall we indeed accept good from God and not also accept adversity and disaster? Would we accept all of the good that God ordered in the opening scenes of his creative action and then turn around and not accept any of the consequence of unfaithful choices that we have made within it? This is the world we live in today, church. A world that's disordered, that's disembodied, that's disoriented by the effects of sin and death. And this is so very often a pain-filled reality. And this is also a reality that God is able to redeem. And through His Spirit at work within His adopted children, that is us, the church, God is making all things new. He's actively renewing, restoring, and reconciling people unto Himself And those of us who no longer walk in darkness but have received the light of Jesus, though we experience the effects of sin and death in these spaces because of Jesus, we have great hope for an eternally good 
and abundant future. Consider if sin and death, adversity, disaster, turmoil had no effect in this world, there would be no need for Jesus. We would all still be puppets in a garden created by a fragile God who could only love the beings he created to only be able to rightly love him. The gospel delivers a very different message to us. The gospel tells us that we were created by a great and glorious God whose glory, goodness, and greatness is not dependent on His created beings so that He could create them with the agency to choose other than His good and righteous ways. And when we rejected His good and righteous ways, sin and death entangled us. They came into the world And we became enemies to our great and glorious Creator, who because of His great love and mercy, loved us still, even when we were at enmity with Him. God sends Jesus into the world, His only begotten Son, and Jesus entered the world as just like us. The effects of sin and death also worked against him, yet he himself remained free from sin. He never sinned. He never took hold of the forbidden fruit. Jesus remained faithful all the way through his death. He did what we could not do. Then God raised Jesus from the dead so that when we look upon the resurrected Lord, when we call upon His name, seek His face, confess our inability, turn from our sin, we receive the right to be named into the family of God a good and eternal reward, one that is not earned but is given. Sin and death had to have an effect on Job's life, and Satan made sure they did. Sin and death had to have an effect on Jesus' life, and Satan made sure that they did. Sin and death will have effect in our lives as well. However, sin and death don't have to have the final word. There is one greater, one who calls through the storm, who calls through the turmoil, who calls through the adversity and disaster. As the winds and the waves thrash about, God is present. Jesus is here. Peace be still. And here we sit today, it's 2024, and many of us, as we sit right now today, many of us today, have hard things, suffering. Some of us are suffering in secret. We we haven't been able to share. 
We're holding it in. We're trying to white-knuckle our way through it. Others have shared openly. For all of us who suffer today, might I offer some final words of hope for reflection. These words have been hopeful to me. In her book, Confronting Christianity, author Rebecca McLaughlin said the following, quote, I think suffering is the greatest apologetic for Christianity there is. From an atheist perspective, not only is there no hope of a better end to the story, there is no ultimate story. There is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. From the Christian perspective, there is only hope for a better end. There is intimacy now with the one whose resurrected hands still bear the scars of the nails that pinned him to the cross. Suffering, then, is not an embarrassment to the Christian faith. It is the thread with which Christ's name is stitched into our lives. End quote. Friends, we walk through hard things together. This is why one of the greatest commands in the New Testament is to bear one another's burdens. To do it in love. If you're suffering today, whether you're here or whether you're watching online, I would encourage you, don't do it alone. Know that Jesus is with you right now in your suffering. Know that the Holy Spirit inhabits that space with you right now. And know that there is a body of Christ that desires to surround you and love you and pray for you, perhaps even hold you while you cry, to wipe your tears, to lift, and to carry you. Friends, this is one of the greatest privileges of Christian ministry. And it's something we've all been called to. To walk with one another through really hard things. To sit with one another in those spaces. And to not try to be a fixer, but to just be present and pray. Father, we have these examples in your word for a purpose. Because you knew us perfectly. You're our creator. You knew how hard things would affect us, how our hearts would be broken. how we would suffer in this space. 
And Lord, you didn't stand far off in the distance and look down and watch. You came. To sit with us. You sent your son. And he was affected. To the point of death. So he knows our pain. He knows our suffering. He knows when we hurt. He knows what it feels like. And he's promised to be faithful, to be with us in it. He's given his body and his blood. Oh, we can be thankful for him. And we can look forward to a good and eternal future with you. Though today, it might feel hard and heavy. We can still give you glory. We can still bless your name, even through tears. Help us to do that. We need your help to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.